Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Product Lab Podcast. Uh, today, I am super excited to go through this topic today, which is how MongoDB used product-led growth to add an additional $500 million in business on an annual recurring basis, which is just fantastic. And so I have two of the masterminds behind the madness, both Peter and Justin. And today we're going to go through how that whole journey worked, what were some of the big milestones that really had to, to happen for MongoDB to make this feat even possible. So can we do a quick introduction? Uh, Peter, I'll start with you and then pass it off to Justin. Alrighty. Hey, Wes. It's so great to be here. So no, my name is Peter. I was on the marketing team at MongoDB from 2015 through 2018, helping to bring Atlas, our PLG product, to market. Awesome. Cool. And, uh, hey, Wes. Good to be here. My name is Justin. I spent six years at MongoDB. I split my time at the company between a sales management role, more in the mid-market section of the business. And I spent the latter half of my time under the chief product officer, really focusing on helping MongoDB make that transformation to more of a product-led growth model plus enterprise sales. Amazing. So I want to talk about the genesis of Atlas. What was the considerations behind that? Why did you even bother? You, you had a successful business. Both of you, even before we got on this, were saying like MongoDB had a successful business. That, that was never uh, in question. It was just, what was the reasoning behind you're really stirring the pot when it came to this new product? Yeah, I think first off, big credit to the leadership team at MongoDB. I think they've always had their eye on the ball of what customers want. And so I think it was probably 2015, 2016 when the company was thinking about it. MongoDB Atlas rolled out in 2016. But I think really what the leadership team observed was our developers were looking for a way to use MongoDB quickly. Right, We already had rapid adoption from an open source perspective, hundreds of millions of downloads. But those uh, developers wanted a way to quickly build with MongoDB, but offload the operational overhead to a company they could trust in Mongo. So I think there was clear indications of product market fit, and we felt like that could better serve and ultimately monetize that user base. But I think that helped drive the impetus to roll out MongoDB Atlas. And just so everyone who's listening knows, can you give just a quick one-liner of like, what is MongoDB in case they're running like, oh, okay, I don't quite get this. What is the main kind of focus for MongoDB? Yeah, sure. So MongoDB is a open source NoSQL database and it's become extremely popular. MongoDB Atlas is a database as a service product, which is offered across all three of the major uh, public cloud service providers. And it's fully self-service. It's pay for what you pay as you go and pay for what you use. Awesome. So we've got the kind of genesis of Atlas, uh, some of the reasons behind why uh, it was considered to go down that path. Now, what were some of like the first baby steps in that direction? Because I always like focusing on the baby steps because most people get stuck on them, oddly enough, because there's no momentum built in that direction of like trying something new. So what did that look like early stage? So actually, we kind of thought of a few different ways to start to try and monetize what we call like the long tail of the market. So MongoDB's business model pre-2016 was really selling relatively large contracts to pretty big companies. And we always knew that there was this opportunity, whether smaller businesses or you know even the individual developer, there was a SaaS product that was kind of like ancillary tooling around MongoDB. Like you start to run the database yourself, but this SaaS product kind of helped 
with that, you know, with backups and monitoring and things like that. And so that was really sort of the first foray into more of the SaaS or PLG direction. While there was some success with that product, like we knew that we were only scratching the surface, but a lot of what we learned and what ultimately became the Atlas product actually came from this cloud manager product uh, that had been out in the market for a few years. Yeah, maybe I'll just add from a, say, a sales perspective. I remember pretty distinctly, we debuted the product at MongoDB World, which is the annual user conference. In advance of that, our chief product officer, Sahir Azam, he definitely highlighted and stressed enabling the broader sales org. So I think that's a a marquee of the business itself is just enabling the go-to-market functions. So started with training, uh, you know, value propositions, just making sure that the, the team was in a position to speak about this product in an educated way. So I think it started there for sure. And my team was fortunate enough to sell the first sales-led deal of MongoDB Atlas a month later. So you know, that kind of started the journey. But yeah, I think that was kind of our, our very early baby steps and happy to get into more detail. So you had that direction. You had that one other company where it was like, okay, this is like somewhat similar. We could like learn a lot from uh, what they have focused. Was it just that one company, or was there like others where you're like, you know what, this looks like a really promising space that we should definitely have a product in? Yeah, I think um, just to highlight it, right? What Peter was mentioning when yeah. we rolled out MongoDB Atlas, we had another product line, right, which was yeah. successful in its own right, and we ultimately went public, you know, on the back of that product. So I think Atlas was more around observing what we were hearing from customers and especially customers that were already in the cloud and saying, hey, like, I just want to move fast and, and I need an on-demand as a service product, really. So I think that was sort of the genesis for that. Okay. And so we talked about the direction you had leadership buy-in. Uh, what was the initial team look like as far as like getting Atlas even just started right off the, the bat? It was actually a fairly small cohort from the different kind of go-to-market functions in addition to product and engineering. So in you know the very early days, uh, there was a kind of weekly sync of the folks who were really paying attention to how you know the, the key metrics were looking, signups, you know, revenue activations. And it was really just a kind of a dozen folks from across executive leadership, product engineering, marketing, and sales. As the product matured a little bit, as the traction really started to pick up. We actually carved out a dedicated uh, growth function who you know were full time uh, focused on on Atlas. And then you know as that matured even further, Atlas actually became you know the main focus for the company, and it was sort of folded back into all of those existing functions. And I think just to add on to that and highlight it, I think MongoDB Atlas in many ways was a startup within a startup. Right. And so you had folks that I think the leadership for sure, the team saw the potential there. And, you know, but MongoDB was was kind of clicking on on many cylinders. So to get folks that were going all in and being, you know, missionaries on this kind of startup, right, was critical. And as Peter mentioned, there was multiple iterations that took place. And we had to do it in a delicate and thoughtful way, especially because the company was relatively large and we were also public. So, you, you know, you have to deliver on your numbers while we're uh, making this change uh, midstream. Good question. I love the word you use there, the missionaries. 
internally, a product that like we call our, our favorite persona, Trailblazers. <laughs> I think we're talking about the same people. <laughs> They're the crazy ones, the ones who want to take like some risk and really they, they want to move this direction. So I'm curious because it, it takes a different kind of person to be in this role where let's say they're successful in their own right or at the existing company and then they go in as like, hey, we're making a big bet as a business and like this may or may not work. And like, as far as your career goes, it may <laughs> make or break it. Who knows? Right. Uh, depends on the culture of MongoDB for sure, as far as that goes. But how do you decide like, okay, Peter, you mentioned there's 12 people on this team, but as far as like those missionaries, that kind of person with that mentality, how did you screen for those people? Because they're not just like, you know, your average kind of person. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to reflect on, actually. I think what we found is that some folks had been very involved in sort of the early you know, iterations of, of Cloud Manager, that product that I mentioned earlier, yep. and you know, trying to experiment with these other business models. So I think they kind of self-selected in many ways. But I think there's that persona with an organization that you know, has a really good sense of like what you know, leadership is really focused on, you know, what goals they have in mind and, and make sure that they're aligned with that and that, you know, they're in the room for those more strategic conversations. Um, and ultimately that seemed to be in general who was working on Atlas sort of like in the early days was those folks that, you know, heard our CEO, Dave, you know, saying that this is the future that he believes like that Atlas is going to be sort of the big growth accelerator for us and made sure that they thought about how their role could contribute to that. Yeah. And I think I would just add one other, you know, from a personal experience, being in a sales management role and just talking to many customers is it was pretty evident to me that customers were interested in this product, right? They felt they felt it could actually solve a problem that they had. And then number two, I think the introduction of a self-service experience, it was in fact, much lower friction. And so myself and my team kind of hearing what the customer was looking for we had a lot of success in reducing friction of that cycle. It was less selling and it was in some ways helping the customer buy, helping them make the decision, helping them get to the place that they wanted to go maybe in less time. And so yeah. that was a big hallmark of uh, the success you know, my individual team had. But that innovation, just to comment on it, I think it's maybe tempting for an organization going through this change to put a ton of structure around it, right? And I think at the same time, you may have no structure and it's complete chaos. So finding that balance of where you can experiment and innovate and let these, these learnings happen is really critical too. Okay. So just for everyone listening, one thing I'll call out here, which is so common for companies that have successfully made that transition from sales to product led is from the leadership team. They have let everyone know on the company this is a big priority. This is a big focus. This is the future. What they're really doing is they're trying to enroll more people to really give this a chance. Because think about it like a plant inside your organization. It's a little baby plant initially. You don't water that shit. <laughs> that plant's going to die real quick. So you need to give it a lot of water. Uh, that's not just from like resource perspectives, but team as well. Get people actively bought into this vision. Because if you don't have those 12 missionaries, I'm not saying it has to be 12, but if you don't have those initial missionaries, trailblazers uh, that are focusing on this, um, it will be hard. So one of the hardest parts is, yes, okay, finding those people initially and enrolling them into this vision. But how did you really kind of get them and 
keep them motivated as far as this goes. Uh, Peter, you mentioned like there was like weekly syncs that were kind of involved to kind of get people with an eye on the ball of like, okay, what is happening for this business? How could we improve it? But was there anything else that was kind of done internally to really, you know, build this momentum as like, this is going to be the future of the business? I think as we started racking up some of those early wins, whether it was like, you know, a new customer or uh, a new product milestone, we were really good about sharing those. So I think, you know, just keeping that momentum of of those positive signals going really was a, a big motivator. So just being very transparent, regardless, you know, how small they feel at the moment, um, just to show people that it's moving in the right direction and that, you know, the hard work is paying off. Yeah. And I think I would just add one other thing you called out, Wes, right? Like, how do you enroll folks? And um, I would just say that it's not that some people are with the mission and others are against it, right? There's some people that are just going to be all in. They see the future. They're motivated, right? There's a subset of folks. And I think part of my role in the second half of my time at MongoDB was to think about what were the incentives driving people's behavior? It could be salespeople. It really could be any function. And I think as you make a change and you maybe you're at a leader at a company that's going through this transformation, it's really critical to look at incentives and how those drive behavior. Because at the end of the day, incentives will drive behavior. And I think that was a big mechanism we used broadly around incentivizing people to do the right things, rewarding them, or you know, sometimes penalizing, not overly, but also rewarding or incentivizing collaboration. Because I think product like growth really forces different functions to work together from sales, product, you know, marketing, everybody has to work together. And I think that's another critical piece of understanding how your teams are incentivized to do that. I love that. Can you talk more about incentives? Because this is fascinating. And you're absolutely right. Like to build a product-led business, you must uh, be much better at collaboration than a traditional sales-led business. So yeah, talk about that. Because I mean, there's incentives uh, you had talked about for collaboration, but there's also for sales. And I mean, there's different ways you can incentivize so many different things. So let's, let's hear how you approach that. Yeah, I'll talk maybe more tactically from a sales perspective. So when we rolled out MongoDB Atlas, as we talked about, there are two separate products. And at the end of the day, a salesperson is motivated to hit their quota, which at the time was predominantly around driving commitments, upfront financial commitments. And it didn't matter which product that they sold, right? It could be MongoDB Atlas, it could be the other one. And so we kind of quickly realized that, hey, most people are going to gravitate towards what they know. And maybe if they get pushback, they're going to go away from our cloud product or self-service product and they're going to push there. And so we started to, in some ways, I would say overcompensate folks to build that muscle, right? That was one example. Another one, when you talk about self-service, pay-as-you-go, pay-for-what-you-use type products, driving an upfront commitment in the initial sales cycle may not make sense, right? That land and expand concept, you know, going with the big commitment of what you think you might use over the course of the year what does that do? It, it may extend sales cycles. It creates friction. It may create frustration with the customer. So we started thinking about ways, again, maybe to less incentivize around commitments, but more incentivize to drive usage. And so that could come you know, in a, in a land kind of capacity, lower friction, higher velocity, and then think about, hey, how do we grow that customer? And the add-on effects are now you're thinking about, hey, we need to implement them the right way. We need to make sure they're educated on the right features. So you're actually, in some ways, more aligned with how the customer is using the product. So that that's a sales example. I'll maybe turn it over to Peter to talk about other uh, functions in the org. Yeah, I think it's obviously so true that what incentives were or were not in place were 
massively impactful of, of what behavior resulted. You know, one of the challenges of layering on this PLG motion with an existing enterprise business is, you know, my team, the marketing team had all of these goals and, you know, not quotas, but targets that we had to hit to feed that enterprise funnel. And those didn't go away. So in a lot of cases, what we were being asked to do with Atlas was, was additional. And so a lot of the initial challenge was just benchmarking you know, what we would need to be successful. How many signups do we need to drive a week? How many activations I need to flow out of that? And then, you know, once you have that that baseline, it gets a little bit easier to understand, you know, how I'm pacing against that. But uh, doing that in conjunction with, um, you know, not dropping the ball on, on the enterprise side of the house is, is challenging. And so I think, you know, one of the earlier uh, successes we had is we started dividing those goals between people on the team. So instead of having two numbers that I had to hit, you know, I was uh, really just focused on on one of them. And, you know, I think as a, a motion matures, you can kind of carve that up even more so that folks are really focused on on driving what they can. Yeah, no, I like that because I know for a lot of bigger organizations that try and roll out the product that model or attack it onto, whether it's a new product or an existing one, one of the comments I always hear is like, really challenging because I'm doing this in addition to my existing job. <laughs> it's just like a whole new job I got. And it's, yeah, for a, like the early stages. So I want to hear more about like how that exactly worked at MongoDB because I know it's, I won't name the company because they like signing NDAs for everything, but <laughs> let's just say, uh, here's how it worked. Like they had the team, it was kind of similar size, 12 people. And they had that, but they just kind of got enrolled into it. And it was more like a part-time effort. Like, hey, we are going to do this in addition to everything else you have going. And then it wasn't until they started getting some initial momentum, some initial wins, where that actually became like a full-time team. So I'm curious if it was like the same, similar, or how that kind of worked. So at least in my experience, you know, as we mentioned, this was very much like a top-down initiative. The board, uh, our executive team, were basically telling us, you know, we will give you the resources that you need. Just tell us basically what needs to happen. It wasn't like a, hey, let's just like try this experiment, see if it works, and if not, we'll you know go back to what's working. It was like this is the future. This is our opportunity to lose. Now go make it happen. Um, so certainly starting with that uh, makes a huge difference. And I think we were fairly you know, transparent with each other around what resources we needed from each other, but also, you know, added onto our teams. So there's certain functions that just didn't exist, you know, when we were primarily, you know, enterprise driven, like, for example, our data and analytics capabilities uh, were a huge area that we invested in uh, once Atlas became a bigger part of the business. Uh, it, we just didn't have that data uh, in the enterprise world. And, you know, so there was no reason to build that function around it. So, you know, that's just one example of where, this new motion really like created a new need, and um, you know we were given the freedom to to identify that need and and put resources behind it. Yeah, and I would add that at a high growth company like MongoDB, really almost every ninety days, hundred eighty days, it's it's basically a new company, right? There there's so many new faces, new customers. So I think as we went through that journey, there were different times when we would in some ways incubate a certain team, right? That would be special people on a special project. We would learn things and then maybe that team would go back into the broader org or again, like the growth, we kickstart it with a, a sort of initiative. I think that was pretty common. And I, I call that out as, as there's change in a org, right? Maybe folks are thinking land grabs and stuff like that. I, I think as you make this transformation, you're going to have to experiment. You're going to have to incubate 
And then when you figure out what learns, hey, like integrate it back into the broader org and then figure out how to scale it. And I think that's a pretty, that's something that should just happen really throughout the life cycle of the company. Awesome. Yeah. Special project coming up. I love that. And yeah, most companies actually call it special projects. <laughs> Pretty common for that part. Now, I want to talk about the initial wins. Uh, Peter, you mentioned like, okay, initial buy-in was so much easier when you were able to kind of vocalize and champion like, hey, here's some of the wins uh, that we've done. But not all wins are created equal. And <laughs> there's a lot of things you can focus in on at the early stages. Like there's usually like so many different problems. Uh, it's more so a problem of like, where do you start is really the biggest thing because you don't necessarily want to like bite off more than you can chew. And like, let's say shake up the pricing and all that big stuff. And then you're like, oh no, <laughs> wow, that really hurt the business. I guess we'll try something else. You never want to start on that. You want to start something with small and kind of work up. So I'm curious how you kind of thought about that from the win cycle, as well as like, what were some of those first few bets that you made as a team to really focus in on and hone in on? So this is an interesting one. When we were first you know, bringing uh, out to market, there were a couple of assumptions we had. You know, Number one, as I mentioned, this was really a strategy to like expand our addressable market instead of just being really large enterprises that had their own data centers. This was for any you know, development team. But with Atlas, I think also based on where sort of cloud adoption was in 2015, 2016, we had this hypothesis that like, you know, really sort of tech forward, smaller teams would be the companies that we would see adopting Atlas, uh, you know, first. And so actually, we were pleasantly surprised when we had some of our existing enterprise customers or, you know, new larger customers expressing interest in Atlas and actually really leaning into this like new way of operating a database. And so, you know, getting some of those early customers, putting that vote of confidence into Atlas, especially the ones who were outside of our initial, you know, uh, guess for what the ideal customer would be was really exciting. Yeah. And I think from a sales perspective, I mean, winning cures everything, right? And so let's break that down a little bit. At Like I mentioned at MongoDB, we, we had high-performing teams and they were... Not that they were opposed to change, but they didn't necessarily need to change. And so part of my role was to go to these other pockets of sales teams and evangelize, right? And And the way I did that was spending time in those regions, maybe they're performing okay, a little bit under, could feel felt like they could do more, but getting them wins and actually getting... And when I say getting them wins, I mean, educating them, supporting them, being on calls and getting those over the line and celebrating those in the regions with the, the sales managers, that was huge. And that was a full-time job of, of really supporting the broader sales org. And as you, know, you take the inside sales org, they have success, they graduate into the enterprise work. So thinking about even just a bottoms-up strategy of getting adoption, right? Eventually, those the believers are, are everywhere in the work. Yeah, I like that uh, kind of analogy too. It's like, yeah, product-led growth is definitely a bottoms-up, like go-to-market strategy. But as far as getting a product-led organization, that's also hopefully going to be yeah, bottoms. <laughs> it may start top down as far as like, okay, here's the leadership saying like, this is the direction we need to go this way. But uh, to truly become that product that organization, you're going to need that uh, bottoms up support. <laughs> you can't just all reject it or else that's never going to work. So I love that. So I got it kind of like the high level view here. It started with getting the buy-in, getting the direction. That was really like step one as far as making this transition. Step two was really building that initial product. Did you call it a product growth team or what was the name for it? Did you have one? Just like special project team? 
I think in the the very uh, early phases, it was called the SWAT team. Is that right, Justin? I think that's right. Yeah. But fit into the bucket of uh, special projects, I would definitely say. All right. So you gave them some cool name. (laughs) And then you had some of those initial wins. And then you kind of vocalized that to the rest of the organization. More people wanted to, to buy in. What was next when you had some of those wins underneath your belt? Uh, what were some of the other big swings that you decided to take in order to really ramp this up? Yeah, I think from a sales perspective, right, we started to find patterns, right? And so how do you take those patterns and how do you codify them further and how do you drive more revenue, right? And so I think that bled into a few things. One, from an enablement perspective, right? How do you actually help these new sellers or existing ones recognize how they should engage a customer based on where they were in that customer lifecycle, right? Because a lot of folks have not come into a selling organization where you're dealing with a self-service channel or even an open source. So I think codifying that playbook just got everybody speaking the same language. And I think the other net effect there was in each of those new sales motions, which are a little bit different than your traditional top-down enterprise, which is just, okay, qualify for budget authority, need timeline, run a clean cycle, get the commit, right? Like that's the cycle. We look for opportunities to reduce friction, which meant how do we get this customer using the product, using it, frankly, in production, if you're talking about a developer tool and happy and healthy. And so that has less to do with those commitments and more to do with the right types of resources to help them get from point A to point B. Um, and we programmatized those as well. And, and I think that just compounded the growth that we saw. Awesome. So I got step four now. Identify the playbook. Scale it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Right. So you got that playbook. Uh, what was next? You you started finding those patterns. And what happens? Yeah. So I think once we sort of unlocked those playbooks, which in some ways was really by accident, it was a net output of really one of the pilots that we ran, where we were actually thinking about converting free to paid users. And we were growing and retaining a book of pay as you go customers. We were kind of looking into the different stages of the customer, realize, oh, like people are at these different points of the, of the application lifecycle. Some are just learning, some are building, some are implementing, some are actually already live, but with our open source product. And once we realized that, we created those playbooks, or I would actually say before that, we did a broader leadership group, right? Because it's one thing to have one person with a half-baked idea. Yep. Um, but you want to get buy-in from the broader org. And we actually went to Iceland. Our, our CRO recommended this. We went to Iceland, meeting of the minds. And we yep. took the kernel of that playbook and you know, other folks made it even better. And then we agreed, hey, like this is a very high priority. We rolled that out. And so then I think the next piece that we started to do was, okay, how can we use... You, know, you have the people in the process piece down. How do we use technology to actually scale this motion and make it even more efficient? Because at a, a company like MongoDB... You know, we were we had the benefit of having millions of free tier users in our product. We had the benefit of having what thirty thousand plus paying customers, which had an umbrella of users underneath them. So that was sort of the next part of it: is how do we start to get more efficient with this motion? Awesome. And so we got those five main steps: identified the why, identified the team, identified the first few bets you can take, and then identify the playbook, the initial one, and then really just how to identify how to scale that up and the teams involved, how to ultimately get more efficient at it. Awesome. What other big pieces or milestones did you kind of identify throughout this journey? Because uh, it's a wicked ride (laughs) as far as like getting up to that scale. 
I'm curious, like what were some of the other big things that really went into to making it a success? I think when, one thing Justin mentioned, which I think sometimes gets put a little bit out of order in this, this transition is yep. it wasn't until there was like a pretty significant level of traction and maturity and scale, they really started thinking about like how to make this efficient. And yeah. so in the world of sales and PLG, that's frequently talked about like, oh, we don't want to overcompensate reps for things that would have you know gone self-service anyway. I think one of the successes is that we really tried to stay focused on just growing that product and yeah. tackle those problems kind of down the line. You know, and then thinking about well, how do you make sure that uh, we're only deploying those resources when you know it, that wouldn't have happened organically? And I think that was, in retrospect, the right thing to do um, because we could have easily kind of like shot ourselves in the foot by being a little bit too focused on that in the early days uh, at the expense of you know growing the product. Thanks for pointing that out. And so, as far as sales and product growth, how did that kind of interact at MongoDB? Because, and also, I guess, precursor to that question, Justin, why did they choose you as the first person to close uh, any of these deals? I'm curious. Yeah. So when I was the sales manager, I kind of saw from my own perspective, hey, like this is the future. And I drove the team there. So in some ways, I got them I bucked my own comp plan. I bucked the team's comp plan. I said, "Hey, like we, this is this is the metric for success. We need to drive growth there." And so that was more of like a personal decision on my side. And I had come from a business that was 100% software as a service, so that was really just more native to me. When I left my role and I joined the product organization, I think part of the reason was a few things. One, I was deeply familiar with the sales process. I had a, quite a bit of success as a manager from a revenue perspective and the team perspective, which I think I call that out as I had credibility within the sales organization. So when I would go to talk to them and say, hey, look, I've walked a mile in your shoes. I've had success doing both things, but here is the, the change. And part of the reason my team had success wasn't just because we were better sellers. We were running a different motion. And I think you know the leadership at MongoDB trusted that, that kind of thinking and my ability to collaborate across the org. So by the way, I don't think that's super uncommon. You see this at other organizations that are going through this transformation. They'll take someone that, you know, maybe they're in sales or product or even marketing, right? And and they'll sort of elevate them up to say, hey, your job is to focus on this transformation. And the reason they do that internally versus say externally is because it is very cross-functional. And so you do have to kind of build these bridges in the org. Sure. And so how did that sales motion work? Because I know at like a lot of larger businesses uh, where they have an existing sales side motion that's working very successfully, they kind of just like sometimes leave the enterprise folks like, hey, hey, don't change much right now. Just keep doing what you're doing. And they introduce some like low mid-touch uh, sales motion where maybe they're looking at product qualified leads or something like that to be like, okay, those are the hand raisers. Uh, if it's a strained funnel, sometimes it's just sales reaches out to everyone. <laughs> I'm curious to hear how that kind of works on your end. Yeah, like again, like going back however many years, what four or five years, a few things like the product like growth, I don't know, it wasn't as hot as it is now, right? Yeah. Uh, there, I don't know if the concept of a product qualified lead existed. So, again, for us, a few things happened. I think my team was almost this accidental experiment that happened, right? Which kind of proved, hey, like this could work in a more broader setting. I was part of the really like the mid market inside sales team. And so that kind of playbook quickly traveled to the inside sales org. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. One of the things we did, the leadership saw us said, hey, like, let's simplify this. I think the mid-market section really wants to buy this product anyway, this cloud self-service product. 
And rather than confuse and increase the onboarding time of our inside sellers, let's get them to focus and learn one product, right? They're incentivized to sell one product. They learn one product. And very quickly, you saw just an increase in productivity. And that's, I think that was one of the big learnings as well and and kind of kick things off. And so what was like one of the biggest changes that sales had to make in this new motion? Because there's, you know, the traditional sales led focus where it's like, okay, you have your SDRs, qualified people, they send them to the account reps and, and everything like that is very traditional. But then when it's, they've been able to go into the product, they've been able to use the product. It's not so much like, hey, let me show you a demo of the product. It's different because they might not need that. Maybe they do, but I want to hear it from you. It's <laughs> first like, how did that change from the sales perspective? Yeah, I think there's two things that come to mind. Um, one is the one I mentioned around commitments. Right? You're, you're hell-bent on a commitment. You're not really as concerned with you know, how the customer is using the product, what they need. You're just, hey, like, where are you? How do I get you over to this larger commitment? Which I think felt a little unnatural to the customers. And you know, we ultimately educated the sellers on why they might want to take a different approach. It also, when you over-commit someone in a usage-based business... Yes, you may get an upfront sale, but you actually introduce pretty large churn risk at the end because they may be overcommitted. They're not using the product the right way. So I, that was definitely one. And I think when an initial conversation happened, right, it was less high level and it was more predicated on where are you in your customer journey, right? Like that was actually the qualification criteria was to understand where you are. Are you are you learning? Are you evaluating? Are you actually beyond evaluating and trying to implement? Or maybe you're you're already using the product further down the line and I want to educate you about the broader the broader set of products we have. So starting to think about how you want to start those conversations and drive to a customer outcome, I think started to be the real playbook. Okay. Got it. And so like this whole journey, if you were to go back and do it all over again, what would both of you do differently? Yeah, I guess I can start. I think big credit to the broader leadership team at MongoDB because and I don't think there's too many things that we could have done differently. I think the leadership was super open to collaborating, learning, being really thoughtful before making broader changes. I think maybe some of the stuff that would have helped is, again, thinking about different incentives, who's aligned, misaligned. That may just help change happen more organically versus having a team sort of beat down the door. But at the same time, I think... You know, look at the numbers, it went quite well. And yeah, I, I think that would to me would stand out potentially. Yeah, I have to agree. It's difficult to look back with how successful it's been and, and you know, find a lot of fault. So I think some of those, you know, organizational things that we kind of have to learn by trial and error, you know, maybe we would have a little bit more clarity uh, of how to build that, you know, PLG organization now that that's a little bit more common of a, a pattern. But at the time, um, I think we made the right decisions. We were aligned on what we we're trying to achieve, and I think the right people were involved. But you know, when any large organization goes through a massive change like that, there's always you know friction and, and things like that. But yeah, it's difficult to look back and, and really say anything uh, that would be dramatically different. Now, here's where my skeptic comes out, and I say, "Sounds too good to be true." All that stuff. I want to hear the dirt. <laughs> 
<laughs> what were the biggest mistakes to avoid? Because every company makes some sort of mistakes. So maybe it's some of those bets that went sour where it's like, oh no, like we wish this uh, happened differently. But I have never seen a perfect like transition. There's always something that kind of goes wrong in the process. And it's, it's usually a big learning. So what was like the one that kind of stands out first to you? Whenever you think of like, you know what, this might have been a mistake. Maybe it was just a big learning. Honestly, it could be like reframed. I know a lot of product-led companies, they're huge on experimentation. And it's like, there's no failures at this company. It's just learnings. We learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, again, it goes back to one of the incentive stuff. When we first rolled out MongoDB Atlas, the potential commissions that you could earn selling that product they weren't necessarily as appealing as our original product. So, you know, I think that's one example where, you know, you may lose a broader audience. Again, I think going back to what we did at MongoDB and what I would recommend for other people is you have to be okay with again, they're not you're not failing, right? Like that you have to if if you're not learning from that failure, then that's a big issue. And I think while we tried things at MongoDB knowing that they were not necessarily going to be we weren't going to roll them out into production, we always learn and we iterate on them. So the example I used before was we rolled out, there was one around sales assist. We had multiple pilots that we ran. And each time we learned something, it may have been that commission structure wasn't right. It may have been that they didn't have the right tools. It may have been that they were going after the wrong customers. So that has to be the mindset that you're probably not going to get it right the first time and have the flexibility in the org to grow those changes really over time. I think in the same vein, the amount of technical depth that you know your average marketer or seller at MongoDB really needed to be successful, I think, increased because you know teams like Justin's were going from talking to CTOs and centralized IT departments to talking to like individual developers and development teams, and so the message had to be a lot more specific and really demonstrate understanding of the product and the pains that they're they're going through. And that obviously had to be reflected in marketing and, and scale touch points as well. So I think there was a, a learning curve for us, not only to understand our underlying database product, MongoDB the database, but also all of the different stuff that Atlas introduced from like management and provisioning and monitoring and backups and all that stuff. So it was it's a complicated technical product and you know it takes time to really get the team up to speed on that. And I think the old ways of just really selling business value without getting into the weeds of how the product actually works just doesn't really cut it anymore. Uh, thanks for going through some of those big mistakes. I want to just like recap everything here. So one of the the big things, the big five milestones, you got to really consider if you're going to make this transition yourself from sales at a product-led, really get crystal clear on what is that why. Uh, internally, make sure the leadership team is sharing that with everyone that this is the, the future of the direction. Uh, because that's going to be super important as far as enrolling more people into this new direction. That's step one. Step two is really identify those missionaries. Who are those people who are a bit crazy? <laughs> No, they're not crazy. They're just really aligned with that future vision. They're bought in. They clearly get it. Not everyone in that organization is going to get it. Uh, you're looking for those people who get it and are willing to, to take that risk to go down that direction with you. The next third step is really identify what are some of those big uh, first bets that you can make as a team. Uh, don't start too big, start small, really build that momentum, build those wins early on to just get more people bought in because nothing is more contagious than a winning team or a winning streak and more people want to be a part of that. 
uh, to get more buy-in. And then the fourth step is really after working through it, try and find those patterns. What really goes into creating a successful user? What really goes into closing those users into paying customers? Identify that playbook. It can be rough, the first version. And then the last step five is really just trying to identify how do you scale that? Maybe it's adding more tooling to really help you identify those successful users and accounts to reach out to at a given point. Uh, there's many, many ways of like how you could scale this, operationalize, it, but uh, for everyone listening, those are the five steps of what you should really focus in on throughout this journey. And as we wrap up, where can people find out more about you if in case they're creepy? <laughs> yeah, so um, a little bit of personal news on our side. Uh, we mentioned we work together, but we both recently left MongoDB to pursue our own startup in the PLG space. The name of the company is called Pace. And we are helping go-to-market teams that are looking to operationalize this new motion. Because as we mentioned, as you move to this new world, you're really overwhelmed with the amount of customers uh, that you can talk to, the amount of touch points that they have in using data and software to make that process more efficient and effective. We think that's the future. And our website is www.paceapp.com. And uh, Peter, anything else you want to add? Well... Looking back on MongoDB success, it's it's you know easy to kind of count the wins, but at the end of the day, it did take uh, you know five or six years to get where we are today. So you know we're excited to see if we can do that a little bit faster for the other companies who are looking to go on this uh, on this journey. I'm glad you kind of mentioned that. You know, we'll save that expectation setter for the very last part. This stuff takes a while. <laughs> But it's you got to have it because if you go into this thinking like, hey, this is just like it's simply a free trial, it's simply a free model. It's like it's like a you know it's a sprint. That's all it is. No, uh, you will be mistaken. It'll take a lot longer. And Justin, it looks like you really want to tell me something, so go for it. Yeah, I think you you started your first point. You said like, hey, like the why, like why on this product. And I think there's a couple layers under there, which is to me what that means is one. What customer journey are you creating and architecting? Right, like that's one. And then two, what is the go-to-market architecture to actually map to that customer journey to drive the best outcomes? And I think that's like your future state. And if you have a good sense of that, you can start to architect your plans to get there much easier. In the absence of that, you're a little bit wandering in the dark, right? Yeah, and I've seen like uh, different architects like approach it differently. Like, there's uh, one of my favorite ways of like looking through that lens too is first principles. It's like, okay, we think of Amazon. Like, what's one of their first principles? It's like people want their stuff faster. Will that change? No, like it will never change. People always want their stuff. If you could send it to them in like less than an hour, people would say, yeah, of course. Like I want my stuff quick. <laughs> that won't change. And it will, the only time it'll change is like when we can start 3D printing everything. So that's a ways out for us to be able to do that. But that won't change. And when it comes to your product and product value and experience of the value of your product, like that is something people always want to experience that faster. So there is ways of creating that alignment uh, without even labeling it as product that growth, because sometimes that can be, you know, counterintuitive to some people if they hear product led is like, oh, that's like just products initiative. <laughs> Why would I support that? There's nothing in it for me in sales kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. I think what's happening in B2B is these organizations are changing and they in many ways more closely reflect like an e-commerce experience, but people will continue to be a critical part of that journey, especially as you know, there's high cost potentially associated with these products or complexity to integration or evaluation. So having trusted resources on the side of the vendor 
is going to be a critical part of the customer journey and going to be an extremely critical part of the success of the underlying vendor, right? That's not going to go away. For sure. Well, this has been a blast going through this. Thank you, honestly, for going through this. This has been a ton of fun uh, through MongoDB's journey of from sales-led to product-led. 